Opie and Anthony did this interview with the homicide detective who was in charge of the Jeffrey Dahmer case in Wisconsin. Jeffrey Dahmer, of course, the infamous serial killer. And in that interview, there was something that really stood out to me. I, I never forgot it. Jeffrey Dahmer, when he was getting, when he was sentenced already and he was on his way to prison, both he and the state of Wisconsin knew that if he went to general population, because of how notable a figure he was and how infamous he was, he'd be slaughtered immediately if he went to general pop. So uh, the state of Wisconsin and Jeffrey Dahmer agreed that it would be best for him to be in solitary confinement. What that looked like for Jeffrey Dahmer was uh, 23 hours a day in a concrete box, no windows, no nothing like that, no human contact, not even seeing another person. And then for one hour a day, you could go to an outside chain link box. So you could see the sky, you could get some fresh air, but again, you're in total isolation, nobody to play basketball with, work out with, anything like that. You're totally alone, 24-7, 365. So going into that, Jeffrey Dahmer in the state of Wisconsin, like I said, agreed. Yeah, that's the best move for me to stay alive and all that stuff. And then three years into that sentence, Jeffrey Dahmer requests, he requests to the prison, hey, I want out. I want to go to general population. I can't handle this anymore. It's killing me in the worst way possible. I just can't handle it. I would rather go to general population, even though I know I'm going to get slaughtered as soon as I go. So the request was granted, and Jeffrey Dahmer went to general population, and very, very soon, within a matter of months, he was brutally slaughtered in prison. And the reason that story stuck out to me is because it's such a peculiar thing. Why would somebody go, hey, you know, I'm in isolation, I have my own room in prison, I'm in no danger. Why would somebody who's in that situation, as infamous as Jeffrey Dahmer is, why would they go into really a chamber of alliance? waiting to be eaten. You're basically a little bunny walking into a chamber of lions. That's what he was in general population. And he knew that, and he went into that situation willingly, knowing he was going to get slaughtered, and he did get slaughtered. Why would somebody make that choice deliberately? And I think the root of that choice is loneliness and how loneliness physically affects you. It kills you in a torturous manner. You're going to hear a lot of this in the news coming up if you haven't already. Chronic loneliness is as bad for your health and heart as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And that's very true, by the way. It erodes your heart. That's what this episode's about, loneliness. And the epidemic of loneliness in the United States, especially amongst young people, you know, young adults. Um, But we're going to talk about loneliness, how to distinguish loneliness from chronic loneliness, why it's such an issue, how to get out of loneliness if you're struggling with it. We're going to talk about all different sorts of things related to the loneliness epidemic that the United States is facing right now, and really the whole world is facing. The person to talk about loneliness today on the program is J.W. Freiberg, and he goes by Terry. Terry is very smart. He's got a Ph.D. in social psychology from UCLA and is a lawyer by way of Harvard Law School. He wrote a book, Surrounded by Others and Yet So Alone, and that's the third part of his book series on loneliness. This book is incredible. I've read most of it already. I'm just about to finish it. Oh, my God. It's It talks about Terry's 30 years in law, and uh, o- over those 30 years, he picks out five stories that all relate some way to loneliness. So with throughout his legal career, 
five stories that relates to loneliness, and they're exceptional stories. Really, really, really good stories. I encourage you to read it. On the Kindle store, it's only $2.99. You can also buy the book wherever you like to buy books online. I'll make sure to put the links to all things Terry Freiberg and also uh, where you can buy his books in the podcast description and also the social media posts regarding this episode. Go to thelonelinessbooks.com or jwfryberg.com, and you'll be able to find all of that information yourself as well. Again, all of the information is in the podcast description and social media posts regarding this episode. We'll get right into it. This is West Coast Radio talking about loneliness with J.W. Freiberg, and he goes by Terry. Also, um, I did my college capstone on loneliness and the loneliness epidemic in the United States back in 2019, and just for shits and giggles, I want to play you the intro that I used back uh, three years ago. All right, hit it. Time now for Morning Rounds, our look at the medical news of the week. This morning, a condition that is so common, you actually may not think of it as a mental health problem. We're talking about loneliness. Dr. Vivek Murthy tackled a range of public health crises. They included issues like Zika, drug and alcohol addiction, and obesity. But he also shed light on a silent crisis, the rising number of lonely people in America. Do you ever feel lonely? Well, you're not alone. A new study from Cigna says most Americans feel lonely. And the group most at risk isn't the older generation. It is one of the youngest. A top doctor calls it a national health crisis, not obesity or heart disease, loneliness. That's right. Loneliness, which can be as harmful as smoking. Yeah, it's pretty shocking. ABC Action News reporter Sean Daly says some local businesses are helping employees so that they don't feel so lonely. 40% of Americans say they're lonely, but it's not a romantic thing. In fact, it starts at work. As I travel around the country, I meet people who are stressed, worried, and anxious. Despair is one of the scariest words, right? Despair. Yeah. When you hear about someone like... Despair and lonely. So that's the other word that they're using, is, is, is loneliness has been, they're now measuring it, and loneliness is, is as or worse of a health issue in our country than smoking, heavily smoking. There's all this, there's this new... Loneliness is? Loneliness is, isn't overpopulation coincided with loneliness at the Think same about time. that. We're thrust further and further closer together, and... We don't know each other. My name is Matthew Williams, this is The Matthew Show, and you and I are going to learn a lot about loneliness why it is so important to cure, and how to cure it to make sure we are never lonely as long as we shall live. So come along, enjoy the show, and uh, let's get right into it. This is The Matthew Show, and we are going to cure loneliness. I remember I was in an Uber with somebody who went to Yale, and I was having this conversation with them years and years ago when I was still in community college, and I didn't figure out how to be a student yet. I, I, I was asking them about Yale and what it meant to be an Ivy League student because to me, and this is what I said to them, University of Washington would be my limit. That would be my Harvard. If I got in the University of Washington, then that would be as far as I could go academically. But since then, uh, I figured out how to play the game a little better, and I finished Seattle University a couple years ago with a 
uh, in communications and media. I did okay. You know, I did pretty well. Very well. Thank you. Uh, I worked real hard. And also, um, I've got this West Coast radio business going. I think I got a lot going for me. And, and as I move into the future, I go, why can't I be one of those people that is an Ivy Leaguer as well? And and you're an Ivy Leaguer. And I want to and I want to ask you, how does somebody like me weasel his way into the Ivy Leagues? Because yeah, I've got good grades. Maybe I have a, a bit of an impressive background, but still, I think that to get into something that rare you got to really know how to hustle. So is there a way for me, somebody like me to weasel into the Ivy leagues? You mean to, to a graduate school? Yes. Absolutely. They, one of the, one of the things that um, the Ivy league schools um, absolutely all universally agree on is they see themselves as national universities, not regional. Um, so they, they on purpose, choose people from all 50 states on purpose, as well as international students, because they want influence over the years throughout this country, let alone the world. And so when you apply, if you're from Washington state and you apply in some, in some senses, you're, 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 they're out looking for whatever the right number, I, uh, you know, at least 25, I made that up, whatever the right number is, students from Washington State, you know, 50 from California, it's huge, five from Idaho, it's small, whatever. They want, they want influence, they want their imprint to be national. Okay. All right. Well, it, just, it feels like a reality to me. It grows each and every day and I'm going to go after it. I really am. If I get in, I'll let you know. I'll listen to your show enough where I can write you a letter. Okay. I mean, I'd, I'd try to be helpful, if you, especially if you want to go to my, you know, I'm an alum, as you know, from the book of Harvard Law School. I don't know if you're just in law school, but that's my main pull. I would want to go back to graduate school to learn how to be the best interviewer, you know, to learn how to separate myself as an interviewer. That's what I'm fascinated in. And they have a, they have a good extension program for journalism. So that's where I would go. Cool. I have a question um, about, and this is about your background with your PhD in uh, psychiatry, psychology or psychiatry? Social psychology. Okay. And that's from UCLA. And um, just touching on that, I want to talk about something that I learned about in high school psychology. I think it's called the, uh, the a critical period between zero and four years old. Is that right? Mm-hmm. All right. So I'm just curious, and I've, I've been talking to my friends about this. If you're born at the beginning of COVID, right now- you know, a young person who's perceiving the world for a first time, a lot of what they'll see are people with masks covering their face. Uh, of course, that covers up their ability to show as much emotion as one person would usually get. Everybody is stressed out. People are scared. There's anxiety in the air. Uh, if news is in the background at home, people are picking up on, you know, check out these dead bodies. And in other news, there's a bomb threat here. There's all types of stressful things, much more so, I would say, than usual that these young zero to four year old souls are experiencing. What do you think are some potential consequences 20 years down the line that these kids are going to have to deal with because of this first experience? Well, that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting question. And um, I mean, on, on one hand, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old uh, grandchildren um, and um, their world's pretty small. You know, it's pretty much what's going on at home. And so it would have a lot to do with the parental reaction to the stressful news. You know, um, 
if the parents are change their way of expression, change their capacity to nurture and hold and soothe their children, then it would definitely have an effect. If the parents are able to compartmentalize the lousy news about, you know, the environment and race relations and so on, if they're able to compartmentalize that apart from their parenting activities, that would be different. So that that's pretty obvious that it, it depends on the parents. But the general question you you ask, if we go a little older than that, since little kids are so concentrated on the parents, the grandparents, the the you know play school, but it, but go up to older uh, students. Uh, and here's an example: we've done testing with some very very reliable tests for loneliness, for depression, for anxiety. And they show that the Generation Z kids, that's 18 to 22, and the millennials, 23 through 38, they score the loneliest, the most depressed, and the most anxious. So this is having a terribly serious psychological effect on young people. Maybe not little tiny kids, you know, as I say, the parents are such a buffer. But if we come up from them a little older, it's not uh, a mentally healthy time to grow up. Now, kids are very resilient. You know, kids grow up in war zones and and in in, in uh, lots of places of the world with food insecurity and so on. And they're pretty resilient little people if they get enough calories to stay alive and if they have nurturing, protective parents. But the psychology of what's going on inside of them is affected by stress and tension. It's traumatizing to have your parents worried sick about their health, you know, the environment, war. Uh, obviously, that's that has an effect on children for sure. It's interesting, the statistics about young professional-aged people uh, suffering from loneliness the most because I did my college capstone on loneliness as a chronic health epidemic, as a did major really? health epidemic. Oh, yes. Yeah, it was, it was um, back at Seattle U, class of 2019. Um, do you want to hear my initial pitch when I proposed it? Yeah. All right. My proposal went like this. So I painted this picture to my professors of a cave person and they're in a, you know, they're by themselves and they get eaten immediately by a saber toothed tiger because they're by themselves back in the cave person days. You can't be by yourself, but if you surround yourself with lots of other people, then that saber toothed tiger is not as scary more. So it could be dinner. And when you don't have that in the modern day, something is triggered in our biological response and our fight or flight response is on all the time. It goes, Hey, listen, I'm not going to let you relax until you have community again, because you're in danger. Am I, am I along the right lines with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we have all sorts of wonderful ways of measuring this in uh, both in terms of, um, of questionnaires. And if you go on my website, there's, I have two extraordinary questionnaires on there. One's called the UCLA Loneliness Scale. Mm -hmm. um, it's um, 20 questions. They're really uh, cleverly put. The answers are like never, rarely, sometimes, often. Mm -hmm. And here's a few sample questions of the 20. How often do you feel that you are in tune with the people around you? How often do you feel you lack companionship? How often do you feel there is no one you can turn to? How often do you feel alone? How often do you feel part of a group of friends? How often do you feel that you have a lot in common with the people around you? So there's 20 questions. And when you answer, when you answer them, 
either never, you know, each one never, rarely, sometimes, or often. Then there's an interesting scoring mechanism that is hidden in the questions that I give the key to in the uh, on the website. But when you go through that, you will get a very objective look at at for the person answering it as to how they feel about their linkage and connection to others. It's, it's an, and we have, uh, if I say that we have tested the reliability and the validity of the test for 40 years now, those words, you, you know, those words, right? Reliability and validity. Mm-hmm. So we formally with statistical techniques can test what, you know, whether tests um, measure what it is you want them to test and whether they do it reliably the same way time after time, if, you know, between different subgroups. Um, so that is an amazing um, way to take a look at that. And the other one that's in there is called the relational assessment chart. And with that, you can take a look at any, at, a, at any relationship you have and you go down the column um, and, and, and score it. And those are questions like, I trust this person with my feelings, one through five, uh, or I feel safe being in conflict with this person. Or this person treats me with respect. Or I can count on this person to help me out in an emergency. So when you answer that for Joe, for your mother or your friend or your wife or your kid or anybody, right? When you answer those, by chance, it's also 20 questions. That's completely by chance. You get a really powerful look at your relationship with your friend. You know, and you say, oh, wow, you know, I'm still calling him friend. But I didn't give very high scores, you know, in things like I can count on this person to help me out in an emergency. Right, right. Well, you a know. lot of people probably go, yeah, but if I lose this person who may not be a good friend, uh, I, I don't have the skills anymore to make new ones. So I might as well just stick with the abuse, you know? Right, exactly. And that's why we that's why we move. Once we take a look at your your overall connectedness to others and then and then a a look at your individual most important relationships. If we find there's a problem, then the challenge is we fix it because we know a lot about how um, to coach people in their connection skills and their connective skills. What, what, what happens, and this is very much repeating what you said earlier, just, just technically, and you said the same thing in other words. Um, we know how children learn to love. Uh, There's a a really interesting uh, recent article called The Biology of of Affection. We understand what goes on in the brain when you learn to love. So little children, little babies are held and soothed thousands of times. When you ask a parent how many times they kissed and hugged their kid, they're a normal parent, they'll say a million is mm-hmm. a very typical answer, you know, or infinite, or I could never count that high and so on. And that's true, right? I mean, I raised uh, a kid and uh, um, it was a million kisses and a million hugs. My delight. Same from my wife, right? Yes. So all of that is training. Where I live on the East Coast, we have Osprey, so they're birds of prey that make nests in high, like foam poles they love, and then they hunt the fish in the sea. Um, in, in French, they're called eagles of the sea, aigles de mer. 
So mm. they're a lot like a somewhat smaller eagle. Um, and, and the nests are so visible when, especially when they choose a foam pole and you watch them training the young, um, after the eggs hatch, you know, whatever it is, I don't know, three weeks later, whatever, four weeks later, and you see the mom or dad standing there, the little tiny ones who can't come anywhere near flying yet, but the mom's flapping her wings, not enough to fly, but enough to show the kid, the little chicks how to flap their wings. So they're just standing there flapping their wings. They don't know it, but they're practicing the skills they will need to fly when she pushes them out of the nest a month later, right? And that, so just as osprey train their young to flap their wings and fly, we train our kids to connect and find affection and love in the world. Because as you said earlier, otherwise in the ancient world, you just died. You, you could not live alone. Humans are are a kind of mammal, and, and not the only one. The, the um, um, uh, cetacean mammals, the seagoing mammals, the whales, the dolphins, the porpoises, they're a lot like us, elephants, rhinoceri, some types of great apes. They're family-oriented, family small pod grouping mammals. And, and, and that's the way we live. That's the way elephants live too around their parents, around their aunts and uncles, around their cousins. And that's the way humans always lived, right? And in medieval Europe, the, the main punishment for a serious offense was to be put outside, was to be banished, was to be put outside the town, the limits of the town or the city gates and be put on your own. And you, you know, in effect, you were eaten pretty quickly, rather like your example of the uh, big cat, you know, people can't live alone. We're not made for it physically, let alone psychologically. We can't do all the things we need to do. We need to division of labor, right? We'll, we'll go find some food. You guys make a fire and get the beds ready and protect the babies, whatever, right? You got to, that's who we are as a species. And so, if you have love, if you were raised by parents who you know wanted you and, and gladly nurtured you and kissed you a hundred thousand times and hugged you constantly, picked you up till you were five or six or seven years old, and, and doing all that, and training you to go make your own friends and connection. I just watched my little grandson. You know, he was in play school. Uh, he was there for a couple of months, and suddenly he had a best friend in play school, right? Because mm -hmm. he had learned the importance of connecting with others and some skills about being nice to someone if you want them to be your friend, share the toy and so on. But what can happen in life is that your parents did what they're supposed to do. You set out knowing how to fly. For humans, that means knowing how to connect with others. But then you run into a traumatic situation you're a soldier in war and your friends get blown up or you're, or you're mistreated, you know, uh, sexually abused or all, I mean, a huge list of ways in which you can be traumatized. Then those links can be broken. Then people cannot trust the idea of connecting and depending on others and they learn not to. And the interesting problem for therapists is how to work with these people. So, um, I'm um, on the board of, uh, it's called the Trauma Research Foundation. And that's where 
psychiatrists are busy learning how to deal with trauma victims, with people who have suffered the kind of break in connectivity that I've just described. And I'm interested, like you, in loneliness. And some of the same therapeutic techniques that are used in trauma treatment are now being used in the treatment of chronically lonely people. Um, so, uh, and, and the main element in, in the trauma treatment therapy of our era that's cutting edge is that you have to involve the body. It's not just talk therapy. And I think that's true for loneliness too. Because the way I see chronic loneliness, not everyday garden variety loneliness, I'm talking about people who are lonely year after year who literally have no one to call or no one who might ring them up on the phone, mm -hmm. no one to spend a holiday with, no one, no one at all. That's what I'm talking about, all right? Those, those people, can they be, can that cycle of loneliness, that, that fear of setting out, which you referenced, and trying again, once again, putting yourself out there to try to make friends, can you help someone do that through therapy? And, and we're finding that you have to work with the body, not just the mind, not just the forebrain. Because loneliness, chronic loneliness, as I see it, is a sensation. It's not an emotion. Anger is an emotion. You can talk someone out of being angry. Hunger, thirst, fear, loneliness, those are sensations. And they're relevant for most other animals and certainly all other mammals, right? They know when they're hungry, when they're thirsty, right? When they're afraid and when they feel too separated from their herd or group of others to be safe. They feel that. They don't think it. They feel it. Same with us. That's, that comes from the parietal lobe of our brain, not, not the frontal lobe where we memorize the list of presidents. It's the parietal lobe. It's our animal brain. We are animals, even if we're human animals, right? And so we feel lonely. We don't think lonely. We feel hungry. We don't think hungry. Um, and so the, the therapy has to get to the level of feelings. Just like you in, tra in, in normal trauma work with PTSD victims, for example, you can't say to a Vietnam vet, stop jumping and getting so sweaty and nervous every time you hear a car backfire. It's not a gun. You're not in a war zone anymore. Relax. Yeah. You can say that a thousand times over a decade. And, and it's not going to help. It's not going to get through to the parietal lobe. It gets to the frontal lobe. The guy says, yeah, I know I'm not in Vietnam anymore. I know there are no guns shooting at me. But my body jumps when it hears these explosive sounds because of what happened to me in the war. So the therapy has to get to the level of the body. It has to get to the parietal lobe, in effect. And so the therapeutic techniques have to be more encompassing than just talk therapy. And so that's why there's, oh, there's all sorts of interesting uh, experimental cutting edge things now, the use of yoga, the use of theater, you know, playing, role playing, um, getting people to really get involved in a role that is chosen to expose their issue. Yeah. Um, uh, there's electronic feedback because we can do all this brain imaging now. 
so we can give them electronic feedback when their parietal lobe takes over and they're not thinking things through, they're feeling things through, and hence they feel afraid, even though they're in downtown Seattle and they heard a car backfire. You know, it, so we're trying to learn to tailor our therapy to the nature of where the traumatic memory, or in my instance, the loneliness memory is stored. That's in the parietal lobe. Really, nobody goes to church anymore. And, uh, you know, church is something that maybe one out of every 20 or so of people people that I know go to church. And, and those people usually are like Mormon. I mean, I, I just don't know that many people who go to church anymore. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because I wonder, you know, when I think about church, I think, all right, well, you have one place that you can go every week where, you know, generally speaking, you got positive energy and a lot of people who want to try to do better with themselves and other people. And then you've got uh, on Wednesdays, you've got the church bake sale. You know, there's a lot of things about church that make it so you've got community built right in. Uh, in your findings, have you ever, have you discovered anything about the lack of attendance in church mixing with loneliness? You know, um, I also think about things like, I think 60% of people belong to a bowling league in the seventies or something like that. And that's gone down. Um, but church specifically, do you, have you, have you looked into that at all? I have not looked into that at all. I don't know of any research on, uh, on church attendance per se, but the, I think the real thrust of your question that's so fascinating is the role of community and the absence of, uh, of community in our modern era. If you go back four generations, let's say, something like that, five generations, um, anywhere on the globe, this country or anywhere else on the globe, life was all about community. You lived am among your siblings, among your first cousins, among your second cousins. Usually you were in, a, in a, a small town or an ethnic neighborhood in a smaller city. Everybody knew everybody. There was no space to be deviant, right? You couldn't just be a little weird like you can in a big city because <laughs> nobody knows what you do when you're private. In that era, i.e. for the entirety of human history up to three, four generations ago, you were never like that. You were always in your community. So was everybody else that you grew up with. I did put in a, a recent book some statistics on, on uh, internal movement in the United States. There's some very available statistics on movement between states. And there's enough movement that it's pretty clear that people do not any longer live near their second cousins. And very often they don't live near their first cousins. And it's not rare for them to be in different cities than their siblings. So in other words, loneliness, which by the way, only became a word in the English language in about 1800. Why? Because there wasn't any room to get lonely, any social space to get lonely before that. You're part of a community. This person's sibling, that person's cousin, this person's employee. Everybody knew who you were, knew your parents, and so on, right? Policemen knew your parents. Everybody knew everybody. No room for loneliness. Well, the modern society, we're obviously very different. A huge percentage of us live in, in ever more urbanized settings. And about 28%, I have the number right here, of, the, of adults in the American population... Um, and it's 20, yep, 28% of in the United States. And by the way, I found the same data in Canada, which was interesting that it was the same number. 
was like a sort of validity test, right? Um, 28% of adult households in the U.S. are now single-person households. Think about that for a moment. 28% of us live alone, eat alone, sleep alone. That's huge. That never, ever was the case, right? In, in communal society, you had um, extended families, you know, grandparents, cousins, uh, depends on the exact culture, but basically multiple, three, four generations live together and, and, and with a division of labor. Some people did this, the women did this, the men did that, the young people did this, that. They worked together. And now that's not how we live. And hence, I think your church example is an example of that. In a community, going to church together was something you basically all did together. And so it was a moment of, uh, of unity, uh, not of division. Didn't matter that you were the butcher or the candle maker or the poor person or the rich person. You're all sitting in the local church together, if you like. Um, and even after society began to change, as industrial revolution took place, urbanization increased, Voluntary organizations, be they religious or your bowling league example, um, um, began to replace that so that you made your friends, if you like, not because they were from your community or they were your cousins or your cousin's friends or something, but because you chose an activity you could do together, like bowling or any one of a thousand other things. Um, and that's still important, but statistically less so, just like you said. Um, voluntary organizations are, are less po populous on a per capita basis than they used to be. They used to be very populated and important in the early days of, of the, um, of, let's say, contemporary society. I want to paint a picture of a woman, Susan the Boilermaker. Um, I chose Susan the Boilermaker because Boilermakers are 98% male, and I want, I want this show to stand out. I want it to be original. So Susan the Boilermaker. Um, so Susan is feeling terribly lonely, and Susan, for her, life is a series of trips to work, the grocery store, and home. And you know this becomes a perpetual thing, and it goes on for years until one night, halfway through another pint of ice cream salted with her tears, Susan says, I don't want to be lonely anymore. I want to fix this. What should Susan do next as an adult that wants to make friends? And I'm not saying we go and get her some therapy because I think a lot of people, um, maybe they need that. Maybe they won't do that when it comes to just being lonely. So let's say that she's not willing to do, to do that just yet, but she needs some tools to go out and make friends. How does an adult make friends? Well, I think there, logically there are, there are two ways. I mean, either you meet new people, you extend and take the risk extend yourself and take the risk of rejection in order to meet new people, or you work on relationships you have that are faulty and failing. And they're both viable uh, techniques uh, that can be obviously used at the same time. But we do have, we do have ideas and techniques for people because some people are not skilled at reaching out to others. Um, they've been rejected a lot of times. It hurts. It's easier to be alone. After all, we live in the in the era, era of uh, mass communication, so you can watch all the movies. You can watch Netflix movies all 24-7 forever, right? There's mm -hmm. infinite streams of new movies, new shows, new music, and so on. So you can fill your time with that. Or 
you can take a hard look at your relationships and work on them with techniques we that we can present to people uh, about how to how to better relate. And I have a, a, a paper on my website that, that suggests some of those. Here's an example, learning how to listen. Many people don't listen uh, profoundly. They're busy with, they have their own r- reply or retort preparing in their head as their interlocutor is still talking as opposed to a real listener so following the idea of what someone says to you about how they felt when their boss insulted them that day, instead of saying, oh, yeah, I know what you mean. My boss did that to me a few years ago and I was furious, as opposed to saying, well, tell me, tell me more about how you felt. You said you felt terrible, but how terrible? And, 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 and does, are there other people who your boss makes, makes feel the same way? You know, going with them into their conversation. People love it for good reason when you listen to them symptomatically. In other words, you listen deeply and you inquire about what they just said so that you get more depth from their report. That's one technique. In the paper, I list a number. And, you know, they're not, it's not rocket science here. But we, just as many of us in the modern world, have learned, okay, let's watch our weight. Let's watch what we drink. Let's watch what we smoke. Let's watch our exercise pattern, right? We take, we've learned that you got to take care of yourself just like you do your car. It breaks down and you'll break down. So we've learned that pretty well. But we also need to take care of our relationships. And we're in such a busy world and there's so much mass media. It's so attractive to turn on a movie and just lose yourself for 90 minutes in a beautiful piece of fiction where beautiful, clever actors portray the, the plot in front of you. But, but that's different from taking the time to work on your relationships and think them through. And that's why on the website, I put those two tests I mentioned earlier and a paper of mine, <coughs> excuse me, explaining them and then talking about some of the concrete steps one can take to better connect with those we know and to create new connections with those we don't yet know. I don't know why this is, but even for me, you know, this is my world. So that, you know, you're talking to me at my most confident and in the real world though, I, I do tend to isolate. It, it's just my thing. And I think that you've touched on the difference between loneliness and loneliness and solitude for 99.9% of the time. For me, I enjoy my solitude, but in the lonely moments when I think about, you know, you need to reach out more and you need to, uh, you need to put yourself out there. Um, it is so scary to do something like, even when I think about signing up for a volleyball league and there are other people who have expressed, uh, feeling this way as well that are my age, um, for whatever reason, it is so scary to show the world, Hey, I'm kind of feeling like I need some friends right now. Like, I don't know why that is, but it really is terrifying um, to open yourself up. I don't even know if it's the fear of rejection, but um, when I talk about this with my peers, it's just, it's this weird vulnerability that we try to protect ourselves from to go out into the world and say, hey, I'm looking for some companionship, not romantic, just regular companionship. And mm-hmm. it is, it's just scary. That's all I wanted to say to you. I, it's, it's a weird thing and it shouldn't be, but it is, it's scary. Absolutely. It absolutely is. And when we, when we test people like that UCLA loneliness scale I told you about, which has been around for 40 years, so it's had a ton of 
of work done with it. When we ask people about their relationships before they take the tests, they report a much greater degree of connectedness than when we have them take the test, you know, and hopefully with honest answers, because otherwise it's a waste of everybody's time. And they just answer those simple questions I gave you, but they score very cleverly. And, and when you find out that people are not honest with themselves, look, people think they're not overweight when they are, right? Yeah. People think they're getting enough exercise when they're not. We all fool ourselves about that extra pound or, or sitting in that chair an extra hour rather than getting up and walking around. People do that about the quality of their connections too. There's other studies where they ask people who their friends are and then they go talk to the friends and they find in, in a rather surprising amount of inaccuracy in people's assessments of how closely they are linked to others. People consider, if you ask people to list their friends, they list people who when you then go talk to those people, it, you, you learn that a decent percentage of those people do not consider the other person a friend or an important friend or close friend. So getting honest about it, it's sort of like an alcoholic, you know, getting honest about the problem and then searching out the help they need to deal with it. So the trick in connectedness is to be honest with yourself about whether you have enough connectedness to others that you get enough soothing and nurturing and feedback, which we need as adults, just as we needed as kids. As I say, that's the kind of animal human beings are. Um, and, and if you're not getting it, uh, getting, uh, being, you know, recognizing that like the alcoholic who bottoms out and then working on it is possible. It doesn't take a lot of money, which is a neat thing. It doesn't have a chemical basis like depression or alcoholism, which are partly biological. Um, it can be done. It can be done. But the but we need to develop, and we're just now working on the therapeutic techniques that are meaningful for this, but it can be done. People can learn how to reach out, how to trust, how to, how to, how to deal with rejection. Uh, all the things, skills you normally learn as little kids, and if you're not traumatized during your upbringing, that you have as an adult, as, as an effective social adult, you have some skills, hopefully, about how to let the little signals you give someone you've just met about, you know, maybe we get a coffee, you know, the kind of things you do to, for, to take a second step in a new relationship. Um, there are skills we all have, but there are therapeutic techniques where we can help people advance and improve their connection skills. Good relationships. Um, this this study was touched on, and um, it, it said, and it was in one of your books that it said that there was a study about men, and it showed that good relationships and solid relationships in their life have shown to be more important than money, prestige of career in regards to health, longevity, happiness, things like that. Um, right. and you know, it reminds me of this interview with Jack Nicholson and Jack Nicholson said, there was one mistake I made in my life. And it was, it was, I should have stopped being a womanizer because as much fun as that was, I see my friends who decided to fall in love with somebody and build a family. And here I am alone and I don't have that. And, um, I think about the world that we live in and the, the, the narrative that we get caught up in it, that we, a lot of us don't question 
in one of those narratives I think can be seen in advertising. So if you look at advertising commercials, as long as I've been alive, it's all about, can you be, can you have the car, the BMW? Can you have the mansion? Uh, can you have the stuff? But it never shows a solid, a man with solid relationships or woman. It shows a person with stuff, luxury, you know, having it all. Um, mm -hmm. But having it all in that world doesn't include the personal relationships that these studies find are the most important thing as far as quality of life and health and stuff like that. Why do you suppose that our culture fights the notion that good relationships are the most important thing so hard? Hmm. Well, you, you came up with an interesting question at the end. And I, I mean, I, I agree with the analysis um, um, in terms of uh, the quality of uh, of relationships uh, differ uh, between men and women. And um, one way to answer the question about why, why we might be that way is, is if, uh, take a look at a, there's a field of psychiatry. It's called relational theory. It comes from the 1970s. A uh, woman named Jean Baker Miller and her colleagues in the mid 1970s uh, published a book called The Healing Connection, How Women Form Relationships in Therapy and in Life. And it turns out that women are very different from men in, in the nature of their relationships. And I've had a lot of fun asking the women in my life, just sort of confirming that. Um, um, I had a very dear friend for uh, 30 years. Unfortunately, he just passed away. Um, but uh, we spent a ton of time together. We shared a bunch of hobbies um, and our wives were equally good friends. Um, but after he passed away, I had a very interesting conversation with my wife. So science, this is not right. It's just idiosyncratic. Okay. But the topic matters that were discussed were completely different uh, between the two women and the two guys. They were equally, the two wives were equally good friends as the two of us. But we discussed superficial stuff. How, you know, how, how the baseball team do, or boy, did Tom Brady throw a great game or, that was a big storm or I shot a great game of golf or whatever, but I don't have any memory of ever having a deep relationship about how skip that was my friend's nickname, how he felt right about, about how his family or his wife or how his kids were doing or anything else. You know, we didn't talk about our feelings. We're men. We talk about, the world, the news, sports, whatever. In contrast, the two wives were always talking about how they felt, especially how we made them feel, right? Whether we came through on a birthday or were polite or considerate or anything else. So back in the 1970s, Jean Baker Miller and her colleagues decided, you know, women are better at relationships building than men. They have this technique of of exposure of confidence in exposure so they talk about their deepest feelings with each other not always of course but women who are friends are much stronger at that than men are i'm ashamed to say and so they built a field of sight of psychiatry that takes a look at relationships and tries to answer questions like yours um, from a, the point of view of learning from what it is that women do that unfortunately we men don't much do, which is exposing, being confident enough to talk about 
how you feel deep down about how things are going in your life. And we don't do that. Could you please tell me, uh, speaking about men not talking about feelings, uh, could you please tell me about the loneliest part of your life and how you got out of it? Hmm. I think that, uh, I, I think the loneliest part of my life, uh, which, which was it still quote everyday loneliness wasn't chronic loneliness, you know, that, which is sort of parallel to the difference between sadness and clinical depression. Mm -hmm. But I remember being lonely when a lot of my parents happened to move for work reasons when I was, uh, 12 or 13 across the country. So all of my, suddenly I was moved away from all my childhood friends, many of whom were cousins. So I was broken out of a community um, and, and thrust into, they moved to Los Angeles, to a big city where I knew nobody, where we had almost no family with one exception, right? So I was jerked out of community into society from a, a little communal part of Cincinnati, Ohio, where the families had lived for five or six generations you know, and we were just in a little community there, uh, cousins and everybody, The you know, the same names were, uh, last names were in the graveyard or in the parents' generation or the kids, you know, that's who we knew. Suddenly I was in the middle of 8 million people in Los Angeles where I knew nobody. Mm -hmm. So that was a very different thing, learning to now I had to go out and make friends because I didn't have any automatic ones, cousins or, or, or kids, you know, friends of uh, kids of my parents, friends who I'd known all my life. So I had to start building the skill set of getting out and daring to make new friends, which as a, up to age 13, I never had to do. It was sort of automatic. So I think that was the loneliest part of my life was when I suddenly had to learn to swim in entirely different waters. It sounds like a lot of, a lot of getting over loneliness and chronic loneliness is being able to stare rejection in the face. And I'm not sure because, you know, I, I wasn't around for a long time in this world, but I'm not sure if time has made rejection a scarier thing for people or not. But uh, that's what, and, and I learned that that's a lot about life, isn't it? Just being able to face rejection, stare it in the face and say, you know what? I might get rejected. I might not, but uh, I'm going to go after this. Absolutely. One of the, um, one of the traits of, I edited, one of my books is an edited book and I have a paper from Harvard Med School psychiatrist, prof psychiatry professor. And she talks about the importance of free play. So when little children uh, play with one another, um, unstructured, not, not something where an adult says, this is the game, here are the rules. But when ki just kids interact with each other, one of the things they learn, besides how to put yourself out, how to offer friendship to someone else, how to enhance the beginning of a new friendship, another thing you learn is how to deal with rejection, right? Not one of us went through junior high school without feeling rejected mm -hmm. <laughs> because some crowd you wanted to be in, you, you didn't fit from their point of view. And so you were rejected. And that strikes, that strikes very deeply uh, for the same reason that banishment does. 
Humans are all, as the kind of animal we are, wants to be linked to others. And when the others shun you or banish you or put you outside in a way or won't deal with you or won't invite you to their party or whatever, it hurts crazy because it hurts in the parietal lobe. It's a feeling hurt. It's not a thought. It's a feeling. It's like being really hungry or really thirsty. It really hurts. And by the way, I often say that loneliness really hurts and people always say, well, isn't that a bit of an exaggeration? So I ask this question of them, which do you think hurts more? A broken arm or a broken heart? Well, I think that um, a broken heart doesn't go away. I think that the pain of a broken arm will go away and that would make it worse in and of itself. Exactly. So it, it, there's even a, a, a part of your brain. So in, in, in the frontal lobe of your brain, there's a little collection of cells with a fancy name that's called the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex. And it has two functions. It is the first stage of reception of pain coming from the entire body. So that's where the pain goes. You know, you, you put your finger on a hot pot. That, that part of the brain lights up and, and, you know, gets the finger moved away and, and the, and dictates your next steps as to what you ought to do. So a very, very important thing, this, this cortex, it's only other job that we can, that we know of to date is that it'll light up on brain imagery of when we make people feel rejected. So we did a study, for example, where where um, the students who were the subjects came in, they were part of a computer game and they were all involved in the game. And then we slowly isolated one, one subject and made them feel rejected and made them feel ignored. And, and we could see in the brain imagery, we could see the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex light up. So it's called the social pain overlap theory that this important center of the brain is the first center to process um, um, pain coming in from the sensory nerves in your extremities. And it is the place where that lights up its only other job. It tells you when you feel too alone, too disconnected, too rejected or banished. So this is very deep stuff um, in, in people's being this, this um, kind of rejection that you talked about. Based off of that description, you know, I hadn't thought about it this way be- before, but really loneliness is a foundational pillar of what it means to live a decent life, like taking care of loneliness and making sure that you have community. Um, could you talk about one or two of your stories, just tease one or two of, of the stories from your book, Surrounded by Others and Yet So Alone? Sure. Um, you're absolutely right. As I say, uh, Loneliness is a sensation, but like hunger, thirst, fear, these are really deep in us. And that's, that's where we get the feeling of loneliness. It wells up in us. It isn't a thought. It's a feeling. And so the stories, uh, I, I tend to write uh, in, in story format because it reaches tens of thousands of people. Whereas if I give an academic lecture, like the kind of answers I've been giving to your questions, that that reaches dozens of people or hundreds of people, right? Mm -hmm. People love stories. We all do. 
Even my little five-year-old loves stories. So he'll go dead silent if you read him a story and listen carefully. It's amazing. Um, so I think uh, what I did in Surrounded by Others and Yet So Alone is choose five law cases that each um, illustrate a different type of subjective loneliness. Um, one of them takes a look at obstructed loneliness. That's the most common type. So people are just too busy to, to relate to others. They, they prefer their work. And, he, and the story is about a little boy who's actually a cancer victim in the hospital. And he told one of the, the, the doctors in the hospital, he wanted to talk to a lawyer. And, and the doc, uh, that doctor is somebody I knew well professionally, and he would serve expert witness in various trials that I would do and stuff. So he called me up and he said, well, you're, you're a lawyer and, and, a, and a social psychologist. Can you come talk to this kid? What, what, why does a 10-year-old need a lawyer? So I go to Children's Hospital and talk to this little guy. And he said to me that he knew his parents loved him, but not in, not in a way he could feel. And I want to give you almost a word-for-word -word quote of the way he said that to me. Sure. It, it says so much. He said, I know my parents love me, but they do love the way a flashlight does light when the batteries are almost dead. It's just a glow. It doesn't help you see in the dark. Whoa. Yeah, whoa. I mean, come on. Beautiful poetry out of the mouth of a 10-year-old. He had it. Uh, and so I, I was thrilled to write his story um, uh, in the book um, because he had so much to teach. He was so wise and sagacious about, about relationships. And he and I sort of conspired to get his mother more involved in his life. She was the mayor of a town, of a, a town just outside of Boston, or mayor equivalent. And she needed to take the time to take care of her child. It's more important than her job. And, and we made some progress and the story talks about that. So that's, that's one of the stories and one of the examples. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I want to leave you the floor to say anything you'd like to my audience uh, before we part ways for a little while. And uh, I, I loved having you. I love talking about loneliness. And please know that you have an invitation to come on my show whenever you'd like. Uh, feel free to call me again at any time. It's been my pleasure. I hope I've been reasonably clear about these topics. And thank you for the opportunity. All right. And that was the program. Thank you so much to Terry Freiberg for joining me on the show. Can't wait to have you back. Be sure to check out Surrounded by Others and Yet So Alone, Terry's book. And that's going to be on thelonelinessbooks.com, wherever you like to buy books online. It's only $2.99 on the Kindle store. All links to everything Terry Freiberg and also where you can buy his books are in the podcast description and social media posts regarding this episode. And that's it. Thanks for joining me. Talk to you soon. Broadcasting from Seattle, Washington, this is West Coast Radio.